Chapter Thirteen of McTeague. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. McTeague by Frank Norris. Chapter Thirteen. One morning, about a week after Marcus had left for the southern part of the state, McTeague found an oblong letter thrust through the letter drop of the door of his parlors. The address was typewritten. He opened it. The letter had been sent from the city hall and was stamped in one corner with the seal of the state of California. Very official, the form and file numbers superscribed. McTeague had been making fillings when this letter arrived. He was in his parlors, pottering over his movable rack underneath the birdcage in the bay window. He was making blocks to be used in large proximal cavities and cylinders for commencing fillings. He heard the postman step in the hall and saw the envelopes begin to shuttle themselves through the slit of his letter drop. Then came the fat oblong envelope with its official seal that dropped flatwise to the floor with a sodden, dull impact. The dentist put down the brooch and scissors and gathered up his mail. There were four letters altogether. One was for Trina, in Selina's elegant handwriting. Another was an advertisement of a new kind of operating chair for dentists. The third was a card from a milliner on the next block announcing an opening. And the fourth, contained in the fat oblong envelope, was a printed form with blanks left for names and dates, and addressed to McTeague from an office in the city hall. McTeague read it through laboriously. I don't know. I don't know, he muttered, looking stupidly at the rifle manufacturer's calendar. Then he heard Trina from the kitchen, singing as she made a clattering noise with the breakfast dishes. I guess I'll ask Trina about it, he muttered. He went through the suite by the sitting room where the sun was pouring in through the looped-backed Nottingham curtains upon the clean white matting and the varnished surface of the melodeon, passed on through the bedroom with its framed lithographs of round-cheeked English babies and alert fox terriers, and came out into the brick-paved kitchen. The kitchen was clean as a new whistle, the freshly blackened cook-stove glowed like a negro's hide, the tins and porcelain-lined stewpans might have been of silver and of ivory, Trina was in the center of the room, wiping off, with a damp sponge, the oilcloth table cover on which they had breakfasted. Never had she looked so pretty. Early though it was, her enormous tiara of swarthy hair was neatly combed and coiled. Not a pin was so much as loose. She wore a blue calico skirt with a white figure, and a belt of imitation alligator skin clasped around her small, firmly corseted waist. Her shirtwaist was of pink linen so new and crisp that it crackled with every movement, while around the collar, tied in a neat knot, was one of McTeague's lawn ties which she had appropriated. Her sleeves were carefully rolled up almost to her shoulders, and nothing could have been more delicious than the sight of her small, round arms, white as milk, moving back and forth as she sponged the table cover, a faint touch of pink coming and going at the elbows as they bent and straightened. She looked up quickly as her husband entered, her narrow eyes alight, her adorable little chin in the air, her lips rounded and opened with the last words of her song, so that one could catch a glint of gold in the fillings of her upper teeth. The whole scene, the clean kitchen and its clean brick floor, the smell of coffee that lingered in the air, Trina herself, fresh as if from a bath, and singing at her work, the morning sun, striking obliquely through the white muslin half-curtain of the window, and spanning the little kitchen with a bridge of golden mist, gave off, as it were, a note of gaiety that was not to be resisted. Through the opened top of the window came the noises of Polk Street, already long awake. One heard the chanting of street cries, the shrill calling of children on their way to school, the merry rattle of a butcher's cart, the brisk noise of hammering. 
or the occasional prolonged roll of a cable car trundling heavily past with the vibrant whirring of its jostled glass and the joyous clanging of its bells what is it mac dear said trina mcteague shut the door behind him with his heel and handed her the letter trina read it through then suddenly her small hand gripped tightly upon the sponge so that the water started from it and dripped in a little pattering deluge upon the bricks the letter or rather printed notice informed mcteague that he had never received a diploma from a dental college and that in consequence he was forbidden to practice his profession any longer a legal extract bearing upon the case was attached in small type why what's all this said trita calmly without thought as yet i don't know i don't know answered her husband you can't practice any longer continued trina is herewith prohibited and enjoined from further continuing she reread the extract her forehead lifting and puckering she put the sponge carefully away in its wire rack over the sink and drew up a chair to the table spreading out the notice before her sit down she said to mcteague draw up to the table here mac and let's see what this is i got it this morning murmured the dentist it just now came i was making some fillings there in the parlors in the window and the postman shoved it through the door i thought it was a number of the american system of dentistry at first and when i'd opened it and looked at it i thought i'd better say mac interrupted trina looking up from the notice didn't you ever go to a dental college huh what what exclaimed mcteague how did you learn to be a dentist did you go to a college i went along with a fellow who came to the mine once my mother sent me we used to go from one camp to another i sharpened his excavators for him and put up his notices in the towns stuck them up in the post offices and on the doors of the odd fellows halls he had a wagon but didn't you never go to a college huh what college no i never went i learned from the fellow trina rolled down her sleeves she was a little paler than usual she fastened the buttons into the cuffs and said but do you know you can't practice unless you're graduated from a college you haven't the right to call yourself doctor mcteague stared a moment then why i've been practicing ten years more nearly twelve but it's the law what's the law that you can't practice or call yourself doctor unless you've got a diploma what's that a diploma i don't know exactly it's a kind of paper that-that oh mac we're ruined trina's voice rose to a cry what do you mean trina ain't i a dentist ain't i a doctor look at my sign and the gold tooth you gave me why i've been practicing nearly twelve years trina shut her lips tightly cleared her throat and pretended to resettle a hairpin at the back of her head i guess it isn't as bad as that she said very quietly let's read this again herewith prohibited and enjoined from further continuing she read to the end why it isn't possible she cried they can't mean oh mac i do believe pshaw she exclaimed her pale face flushing they don't know how good a dentist you are what difference does a diploma make if you're a first-class dentist i guess it's all right mac didn't you ever go to a dental college no answered mcteague doggedly what was the good i learned how to operate wasn't that enough hark said trina suddenly wasn't that the bell of your office they had both heard the jangling of the bell that mcteague had hung over the door of his parlors the dentist looked at the kitchen clock that's vanovich said he he's a plumber round on sutter street he's got an appointment with me to have a bicuspid pulled i got to go back to work 
He rose. But you can't, cried Trina, the back of her hand upon her lips, her eyes brimming. Mac, don't you see? Can't you understand? You've got to stop. Oh, it's dreadful. Listen. She hurried around the table to him and caught his arm in both her hands. Huh? growled McTeague, looking at her with a puzzled frown. They'll arrest you. You'll go to prison. You can't work. Can't work any more. We're ruined. Vonovich was pounding on the door of the sitting-room. He'll be gone in a minute, exclaimed McTeague. Well, let him go. Tell him to go. Tell him to come again. Why, he's got an appointment with me, exclaimed McTeague, his hand upon the door. Trina caught him back. But, Mac, you ain't a dentist any longer. You ain't a doctor. You haven't the right to work. You never went to a dental college. Well, suppose I never went to a college. Ain't I a dentist just the same? Listen, he's pounding there again. No, I'm going, sure. Well, of course. Go, said Trina, with sudden reaction. It ain't possible they'll make you stop. If you're a good dentist, that's all that's wanted. Go on, Mac. Hurry before he goes. McTeague went out, closing the door. Trina stood for a moment looking intently at the bricks at her feet. Then she returned to the table and sat down again before the notice, and resting her head in both her fists, read it yet another time. Suddenly the conviction seized upon her that it was all true. McTeague would be obliged to stop work, no matter how good a dentist he was. But why had the authorities at the city hall waited this long before serving the notice? All at once Trina snapped her fingers with a quick flash of intelligence. "'It's Marcus that's done it,' she cried. It was like a clap of thunder. McTeague was stunned, stupefied. He said nothing. Never in his life had he been so taciturn. At times he did not seem to hear Trina when she spoke to him, and often she had to shake him by the shoulder to arouse his attention. He would sit apart in his parlors, turning the notice about in his enormous clumsy fingers, reading it stupidly over and over again. He couldn't understand. What had a clerk at the city hall to do with him? Why couldn't they let him alone? "'Oh, what's to become of us now?' wailed Trina. "'What's to become of us now? We're paupers, beggars, and all so sudden.' And once, in a quick, inexplicable fury, totally unlike anything that McTeague had noticed in her before, she had started up, with fists and teeth shut tight, and had cried, "'Oh, if you'd only killed Marcus Shoulder that time he fought you!' McTeague had continued his work, acting from sheer force of habit, his sluggish, deliberate nature, methodical, obstinate, refusing to adapt itself to the new conditions. "'Maybe Marcus was only trying to scare us,' Trina had said. How are they going to know whether you're practicing or not? I got a mold to make tomorrow, McTeague said. And Vonovich, that plumber around on Sutter Street, he's coming again at three. Well, you go right ahead, Trina told him decisively. You go right ahead and make the mold, and pull every tooth in Vonovich's head if you want to. Who's going to know? Maybe they just sent that notice as a matter of form. Maybe Marcus got that paper and filled it in himself. The two would lie awake all night long, staring up into the dark, talking, talking, talking. Haven't you got any right to practice if you've not been to a dental college, Mac? Didn't you ever go? Trina would ask again and again. No, no, answered the dentist. I never went. I learned from the fellow I was apprenticed to. I don't know anything about a dental college. Ain't I got a right to do as I like? He suddenly exclaimed. If you know your profession, isn't that enough? cried Trina. Sure, sure, growled McTeague. I ain't going to stop for them. You go right on, Trina said, and I bet you won't hear another word about it. 
Suppose I go round to the city hall and see them, hazarded McTeague. No, no, don't you do it, Mac, exclaimed Trina. Because if Marcus has done this just to scare you, they won't know anything about it there at the city hall. But they'll begin to ask you questions and find out that you never had graduated from a dental college, and you'd be just as bad off as ever. Well, I ain't going to quit for just a piece of paper, declared the dentist. The phrase stuck to him. All day long he went about the rooms or continued at his work in the parlors, growling behind his thick mustache. I ain't going to quit for just a piece of paper. No, I ain't going to quit for just a piece of paper. Sure not. The days passed. A week went by. McTeague continued his work as usual. They heard no more from the city hall, but the suspense of the situation was harrowing. Trina was actually sick with it. The terror of the thing was ever at their elbows, going to bed with them, sitting down with them at breakfast in the kitchen, keeping them company all through the day. Trina dared not think of what would be their fate if the income derived from McTeague's practice was suddenly taken from them. Then they would have to fall back on the interest of her lottery money, and the pittance she derived from the manufacture of the Noah's Ark animals, a little over thirty dollars a month. No, no, it was not to be thought of. It could not be that their means of livelihood was to be thus stricken from them. A fortnight went by. I guess we're all right, Mac, Trina allowed herself to say. It looks as though we were all right. How are they going to tell whether you're practicing or not? That day a second and much more peremptory notice was served upon McTeague by an official in person. Then suddenly Trina was seized with a panic terror, unreasoned, instinctive. If McTeague persisted, they would both be sent to a prison. She was sure of it, a place where people were chained to the wall, in the dark, and fed on bread and water. "'Oh, Mac, you've got to quit,' she wailed. "'You can't go on. They can make you stop.' Oh, why didn't you go to a dental college? Why didn't you find out that you had to have a college degree? And now we're paupers, beggars. We've got to leave here. Leave this flat where I've been, where we've been so happy, and sell all the pretty things, sell the pictures and the melodeon, and— Oh, it's too dreadful. Huh? Huh? What? What? exclaimed the dentist, bewildered. I ain't going to quit for just a piece of paper. Let them put me out. I'll show them. They— they can't make small of me. Oh, that's all very fine to talk that way, but you'll have to quit. Well, we ain't paupers, McTeague suddenly exclaimed, an idea entering his mind. You've got our money yet. You've got your five thousand dollars and the money you've been saving up. People ain't paupers when they've got over five thousand dollars. What do you mean, Mac? cried Trina, apprehensively. Well, we can live on that money until... 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 He broke off with an uncertain movement of his shoulders, looking about him stupidly. "'Until when?' cried Trina. "'There ain't ever going to be any until. We've got the interest of that five thousand, and we've got what Uncle Olbermann gives me, a little over thirty dollars a month, and that's all we've got. You'll have to find something else to do.' "'What will I find to do?' "'What, indeed?' McTeague was over thirty now, sluggish and slow-witted at best. What new trade could he learn at this age? Little by little Trina made the dentist understand the calamity that had befallen them, and McTeague at last began canceling his appointments. Trina gave it out that he was sick. Not a soul need know what's happened to us, she said to her husband. But it was only by slow degrees that McTeague abandoned his profession. Every morning after breakfast he would go into his parlors as usual and potter about his instruments his dental engine, and his washstand in the corner behind his screen where he made his molds. Now he would sharpen a hoe excavator, 
Now he would busy himself for a whole hour making mats and cylinders. Then he would look over his slate where he kept a record of his appointments. One day Trina softly opened the door of the parlors and came in from the sitting room. She had not heard McTeague moving about for some time and had begun to wonder what he was doing. She came in, quietly shutting the door behind her. McTeague had tidied the room with the greatest care. The volumes of The Practical Dentist and the American System of Dentistry were piled upon the marble-top center table in rectangular blocks. The few chairs were drawn up against the wall under the steel engraving of Lorenzo de' Medici, with more than usual precision. The dental engine and the nickeled trimmings of the operating chair had been furbished till they shone, while on the movable rack in the bay window, McTeague had arranged his instruments with the greatest neatness and regularity. Hoe excavators, pluggers, forceps, pliers, corundum discs and burrs, even the boxwood mallet that Trina was never to use again, all were laid out and ready for immediate use. McTeague himself sat in his operating chair, looking stupidly out of the windows, across the roofs opposite, with an unseeing gaze, his red hands lying idly in his lap. Trina came up to him. There was something in his eyes that made her put both arms around his neck and lay his huge head with its coarse blonde hair upon her shoulder. I... I got everything fixed, he said. I got everything fixed and ready. See, everything ready and waiting, and... and... and nobody comes, and nobody's ever going to come any more. Oh, Trina! He put his arms about her and drew her down closer to him. Never mind, dear, never mind, cried Trina, through her tears. It'll all come right in the end, and we'll be poor together if we have to. You can sure find something else to do. We'll start in again. Look at the slate there, said McTeague, pulling away from her and reaching down the slate on which he kept a record of his appointments. Look at them. There's Vonovich at two on Wednesday, and Loghead's wife Thursday morning, and Heise's little girl Thursday afternoon at one thirty. Mrs. Watson on Friday, and Vonovich again Saturday morning early at seven. That's what I was to have had, and they ain't going to come. They ain't ever going to come any more. Trina took the little slate from him and looked at it ruefully. Rub them out, she said, her voice trembling. Rub it all out. And as she spoke, her eyes brimmed again, and a great tear dropped on the slate. That's it, she said. That's the way to rub it out, by me crying on it. Then she passed her fingers over the tear-blurred writing and washed the slate clean. All gone. All gone, she said. All gone, echoed the dentist. There was a silence. Then McTeague heaved himself up to his full six feet two, his face purpling, his enormous mallet-like fists raised over his head. His massive jaw protruded more than ever, while his teeth clicked and grated together. Then he growled. If ever I meet Marcus Scholler. He broke off abruptly, the white of his eyes growing suddenly pink. Oh, if ever you do, exclaimed Trina, catching her breath. End of chapter 13